This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, December 5th. I'm Virginia Allen. Thursday will mark exactly two months since Hamas attacked Israel and killed 1,200 people. Robert Greenway is the director of the Center for National Defense here at the Heritage Foundation, and he's joining us on the show today to answer critical questions about where we stand in the fight right now, the hostages that still remain in Gaza, and what the future may hold for this conflict. So stay tuned for our conversation after this. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And I'm Zach Smith. And we host SCOTUS 101. It's a podcast where you'll get a breakdown of top cases in the highest court in the land. Hear from some of the greatest legal minds. And of course, get a healthy dose of Supreme Court trivia. Want to listen? Find us wherever you get your podcasts or just head to heritage.org slash podcasts. Case is submitted. The Heritage Foundation's Robert Greenway is with us now. Thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's dive in first and talk about what we know about the remaining hostages that are still in Gaza. There are uh, over just over 100 hostages have been released. We're obviously incredibly thankful. We celebrate their release. Um, these are mainly women and children. We know that there's still about 120 hostages that are estimated to be in Gaza. From the hostages that have been released, what have we learned about how they were treated and the conditions that they were in uh, while they were captive in Gaza? So um, great question. What we've learned, I think, um, from the hostages that have been released are two things. Uh, first is that Hamas conducted an absolutely horrific attack and took toddlers, uh, women, uh, the elderly um, hostage, which being taken hostage and taking hostage, of course, is a, is a war crime in and of itself. But to do so uh, with the most vulnerable in our populations uh, among the innocent civilians in Israel, I think is just another stark reminder of what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two is um, the Israelis have been able to conduct interviews with those that have been released. And uh, it reinforced, again, the horrific tendencies because much of what we saw perpetrated and captured by the, the terrorists on October the 7th was continued during the period of time that they were held hostage. So they were subjected to physical and mental abuse that's difficult to comprehend. Uh, we have to, of course, understand that uh, many of those uh, still have family members, and so they have to be somewhat guarded in what they will say and what the Israelis will release publicly. Mm -hmm. um, but enough has come out to give us an indication that we're dealing with intolerable, uh, unsanctionable, irreconcilable behavior from the worst form of terrorism uh, we can imagine. Um, and I'd, I'd add last that there was a body of foreign individuals that were working um, in uh, the kibbutzes in, uh, in Israel, taken hostage, mm -hmm. particularly from Thailand, that were released also as part of this, independent of the hostage negotiation process, and that took place directly between the government of Thailand, for example, and the government of Iran, uh, which also obviously directs and controls Hamas. And they were able to secure the release of uh, a number of their hostages as well. And so, again, as a reminder of who's really responsible here. Mm -hmm. Among the about 120 hostages that we know of that remain in Gaza, how confident do you think we can be that those hostages are still alive? Well, we don't even know the number, right? As you mm -hmm. pointed out, we have a range. It's about 130 Israelis maybe there. There may be nine or 10 Americans unaccounted for. We're not entirely sure. We don't know their location, obviously. We don't know their condition. 
part of the original negotiation was to allow the International Red Cross Red Crescent access to verify the physical condition, and they were denied access to do so. And so uh, here again, we're left to wonder the condition uh, and the, even the number. Uh, and again, it's just a reminder of who we're dealing with. Um, terrorists, obviously, we don't negotiate with them for this very reason. But um, I think we're learning that there's far too many left in captivity and the conditions in which they're being held is horrific. And many have died, we know, uh, since uh, they've been held captive. Yeah, I was working on um, a report recently with the names and the faces of all of those that we know of that we believe are still alive and held hostage. Uh, and it was I, I had to start making a separate list of those who were originally believed to be held hostage, but now we have learned that they have been murdered um, and the number is quite high. It's, it's, I mean, tragic is a, a very light word to use. There really aren't words for it. What do we know about where negotiations do stand? And, you know, I think it's on everyone's hearts and minds of, okay, for the folks that are still over there, we got to get them out. But fighting has restarted after that week long um, ceasefire. So could we be looking at, months? Do we have any sense on how long it could be before the rest of the hostages are released? Well, we don't. Um, and now that the ceasefire um, has, has ended and the hostage exchange concluded, Israel directed its negotiating team to return to Israel, an indication that talks are not ongoing, at least that they are party to. Um, second, that Hamas broke the ceasefire um, on a number of fronts, not least of which was the terrorist attack that took place in Jerusalem, claiming yet more lives. Um, but also because, uh, again, they were not cooperative uh, in, the in the inspection of vehicles that were providing aid and a number of other fronts. And so here we are back to hostilities. But it's important to remember, too, that Israel's progress in Gaza created the leverage necessary to get to the point where they were willing to negotiate the release of hostages in the first place, which does give us some encouragement that that same pressure could resume and provide, again, an opportunity to obtain hostages, hopefully the American hostages, it's inexplicable to me that we could be part of these agreements and not get our own people back. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think it shows, one, their perception of U.S. weakness, and, and two, that the leverage they really hold is over the United States. It's inconsequential in a certain way, the, the, the leverage they have over Israel. Um, I think that's sort of uh, understood. What isn't is the leverage over the United States is the only way they can apply leverage over Israel. And what I mean is that only by convincing the United States to constrain Israel and modify its behavior in their direction can come from Washington. And that is how they're using our hostages in order to do it and international condemnation of what's going on in Gaza to the extent that they're able to convince people. Um, and so it's important, I think, to calculate. But I'm encouraged that additional progress made by Israel would give them leverage, but also may create circumstances in which they're able to physically execute a recovery operation themselves. How is America involved? Because obviously the U.S. does not have direct contact with Hamas. Who are the individuals that we're in contact with and working with? And what should the demands be that America is making in order to get our people out? Well, the demands start in the reverse order. The mm. demands are easy. Right? All American hostages, all hostages need to be released immediately. And we've really not done that in a convincing way. And this, again, is why uh, we've strongly discouraged negotiating with terrorists for obvious reasons, I would think. Second, the negotiations are taking place out of the, the office of Hamas in Doha, Qatar, um, which is a major non-NATO U.S. ally. They house the largest regional air base in the United States in the region, um, but it's a complex relationship. They also, uh, many will recall, uh, at our request, uh, opened up an office for the Taliban and for negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban took place over multiple U.S. administrations. 
this is a request that I've always thought is not in our best interest. It's not even in Qatar's interest, really, to host these groups. Um, but nonetheless, the calculation was that if we allow them in office, then we can have negotiations, we can have discussions that otherwise would be complicated. And that's what's taking place now. And so, again, that calculation is it's better for them to have a presence there than it is for us to not have one. I, I'm unconvinced of it. I think there are ways to negotiate without it. And I think there are ways to communicate uh, absent uh, the risk of having that office. Because now what we've done is created a sanctuary for leadership to remain with impunity. And we should make no mistake that the individuals that are culpable in planning, executing, and supporting these attacks have a home. Uh, and again, is the cost of having a presence and, a, and an address and a phone number to call and have indirect negotiations necessary? In my judgment, probably not. How is Israel's defense force, Israel's military, specifically targeting uh, Hamas leaders right now? That Obviously, the fighting has restarted. Where are they focusing their firepower? So up to this point, uh, most uh, everyone accepts the fact that operations were uh, confined mostly to northern Gaza. It's the most population-dense uh, uh, portion of the Strip. It's very small in and of itself. And it has the capital city, for lack of a better term. And uh, one of the initial moves made by the Israeli Defense Force was to split and to establish uh, a presence and to essentially sever with only a humanitarian channel connecting the two and directing movements uh, of civilians uh, from one area into the next. They've surrounded it. Um, it's bordered by the sea in Israel and southern Gaza. So in, a, in effect, they've surrounded it and they are constricting the size of ground they don't control ever since. They've recently started operations in southern Gaza. Uh, it is only early stages of this, but I think the idea is the same. They want to establish a presence to increase the ability to um, uh, collect and obtain information and intelligence necessary to prosecute subsequent phases. And they recognize that many fled from northern Gaza into southern Gaza quite naturally to avoid military operations. And so you can't have a sanctuary because all you do is sort of move the problem from one place to another. And if you say there's a part of there's a space in which I won't conduct, I won't solve the problem, then that sanctuary and then obviously will become a home for terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. You can't eliminate them. So I think now you'll see a constricting sort of uh, anaconda approach in northern Gaza, restricting access and control. And Israel will prioritize regaining, reacquiring and reservicing high value targets in Hamas leadership and infrastructure. Um, but the operation will have to go much further than that. And it, to your question earlier, how long will it take? Well, uh, progress in the past has indicated this is probably going to take weeks and months, and I think that's probably accurate. Okay. So then looping back to what you said about uh, Qatar and having that Hamas office there, the question would be, all right, well, you know, if Israel is closing and closing in, maybe they could destroy many Hamas troops, but wouldn't the high-ranking leaders of Hamas just escape? To, to Qatar and, you know, seek shelter there where essentially Israeli troops can't reach them. Well, certainly it is a possibility. Uh, again, anywhere sanctuary is tolerated, you, that risk is present. Okay. Um, now, there have been different reports about Israel's intent in terms of leadership outside of Gaza. Um, safe to assume, I think that they should probably re, uh, renew their life insurance policies. Um, at some point in time, they are likely to become targets. Uh, regardless of arrangements made, again, it, it predicated on what happens next. But uh, fundamentally, the issue is if you allow space for them to exist, mm -hmm. uh, they will find a way to get there to avoid the consequences. And unfortunately, the civilian populations are bearing the consequences of this, but that is by design. 
They have forbid their movement uh, to avoid conflict, to avoid uh, targeting operations. So even though Israel is providing advance warning and now helping move the population from areas of conflict to areas of, uh, of non-conflict, uh, Hamas is doing everything they can to, to avoid that and to keep the civilian population there so that the cost borne by the civilian population can be used in a propaganda campaign to constrain Israel's operations. Mm-hmm. But that is by design. This is what terrorists do. They don't care about the consequences of the civilian population. In fact, it's by design. They want them to incur the cost of the conflict. And do we know how many targets Israel has taken out so far? How how successful they have been at taking out Hamas targets? Well, so targets, you know, would, is a broad category sure, of terms. So sure. we know that they've taken over 10,000 strikes within Gaza, but that, again, encompasses a broad range. That could be uh, infrastructure supporting terrorist attacks. So a rocket is launched, that rocket site then becomes a viable military target to destruct. It, surprisingly uh, to many, uh, Gaza and Hamas are still launching missiles, rockets, two months after October the 7th. And despite the operations in Gaza, are still they have the ability to launch rockets into civilian occupied territories and civilian areas of Israel. And so that threat persists. Uh, likewise, um, leadership targets moving about uh, would also propose uh, pose a viable target. Those strikes have also been undertaken. And then lastly, there's the tunnel infrastructure and mm-hmm. supporting infrastructure that sustains this entire animal that was built at great expense. And with uh, we are led to believe the support of international organizations, you know, whether they are witting or non-witting, in the construction of these massive facilities underground and above ground, often under schools, hospitals, and civilian infrastructure. And that also has to be eliminated uh, as part of the threat. So all told, some 10,000 strikes have been conducted. Um, and I don't know how many thousands of missiles launched from Gaza still into Israeli territory, but okay. probably a greater number than 10,000. And as it relates to the Palestinian civilians, what is the latest on Egypt? Are Palestinians able, if they want to, to escape into Egypt? Is that an option? So first, there are a large number of Palestinians in uh, many of the countries within the Middle East for all kinds of reasons. Some uh, have been there for generations and others uh, have since moved. Um, The official positions of Egypt and other countries in the region is they will not accept Palestinian refugees from Gaza. Um, The official reason that they've cited is so that they're not providing an alternate home, so that they don't want long term to provide a location other than what they believe is their actual home in the territories. The real reason many suspect them, and I put myself in this category, is they really don't want to export a domestic security issue themselves. They can't guarantee or that they know with some degree of probability that they're inviting a a risk into their country. And unlike the U.S. uh, open border policy under the current administration, they're not willing to accept that risk themselves. Okay. We've seen some recent escalations outside of Israel itself, Uh, Syria, Iraq, the Red Sea. Explain what is going on there. So as of today, we're looking at some 75 attacks against U.S. forces and bases in Iraq and Syria alone since October 17th, with only five U.S. responses, including one over the weekend, uh, striking in Iraq, killing five members of Harakat al-Nujaba, an Iranian-sponsored terrorist group, uh, conducting an attack on U.S. bases and infrastructure in Iraq. Um, most So that is alarming in and of itself. That mm-hmm. volume of uh, of attack is is in an incredible spike in some 60 days. It's almost two attacks a day. Mm. And the odds of them killing or wounding an American increase every time this happens. It's only luck that has prevented us and the skill of our forces and the capability they have to defend themselves. But honestly speaking, the odds are tremendously in favor of a casualty at some point 
um, just because of the volume of attacks. We're very, very blessed, in fact, that this has not yet happened. Uh, second, that they continue to have the intent to do it because they they bear no costs. As long as they have no penalty associated with this, they're not bearing their costs. And by they, I mean the Iranians themselves who are directing this attack, arming, equipping, and funding the operations against us, then they'll continue to do it. Uh, what What is also alarming is we've seen actions in the Red Sea uh, interdicted by ourselves, drones launched by the Houthis in Yemen against commercial shipping and our own naval vessels. Mm -hmm. And over the weekend, three ships were struck with cruise missiles, one uh, at the verge of sinking, and drones were fired probably at a responding U.S. naval vessel um, who is responding to the aid distress call of the three commercial ships. And what we know from the Iranian-sponsored Houthi organization is they'll continue to do this. So we've seen piracy. They've taken over a, a ship in the Red Sea that they believe uh, is owned or operated by the Israelis. And they've fired now at three additional ships, which make, I think, five all told. Doesn't fall into the category of the 75 uh, attacks that have happened since October the 17th, but should. Ultimately, the same issue is present here. They'll continue to conduct these attacks until a cost is born, until they have to pay a price for it. The problem is 25% of the world's shipping transit this very narrow area between the Bab el-Mendeb and the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. 25% of the world's shipping could be disrupted as a result of this attack on maritime vessels, which, as you'd appreciate, are not well defended. And so it is in our collective best interest to stop this as before it escalates and has a greater economic impact on not just ourselves but others. And then there's the loss of more innocent lives. There's a that ship that they hijacked has a crew. That crew are now part of the hostage calculation. They're sitting now in Yemeni waters under the control of an Iranian-sponsored terrorist group. So now the hostage list grows because we are incentivizing the taking of hostages. Why is it not a strike for a strike? I mean, five to 75 is not equal math. It's not unless the five uh, you know, resulted in a cost and a consequence. Uh, for us in the Trump administration, a strike against Qasem Soleimani that resulted in his death and Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas was sufficient to stop the escalation spiral ultimately and brought things to a, a very quick conclusion. And that has historically been successful. So five could work if they were the right five. One could work, but they have to pay a price. Uh, up to this point, we've hit empty, uh, abandoned infrastructure and bases where no personnel were wounded, or we've struck and produced casualties that exist among their surrogates. They're willing to, the surrogates exist to die for the cause. That's the whole point. And the equipment is replaceable. And the civilian populations that they reside in are completely expendable in their calculations. Only Iran paying a price will stop Iran issuing directions to conduct attacks. And as we saw during the ceasefire, these attacks ebbed to near zero, indicating that Iran is under total control here. And mm. that's, again, uh, everyone knows and accepts this, but the administration's unwilling to do so because their policy has been to appease Iran to okay. get better behavior. Mm. That was going to be my next question, but you just answered it. The, the, the why, why aren't we doing more? And it's that appeasement. Okay, interesting. Uh, over the weekend, we learned that there was a church in the Philippines that was bombed, and those actions, the bombing, was believed to have been carried out by members of ISIS. It's been a little while since we heard much about ISIS in the news. Should this be a concern? Is ISIS resurging? So it absolutely should be a concern. First, because you've got persecuted religious minorities that exist across the globe that are under threat in so many different regions and often escape public attention. I would say Sudan falls in this category, um, but there are a number of different areas in which we see the risk uh, to a number of different uh, small minorities exposed to the threat of ISIS and other groups. Uh, is this an indication that ISIS is resurgent? I think the answer is it, it's not clear that that is the case now, but the conditions are there. So what I think we're seeing is 
is exactly the conditions that resulted in ISIS uh, obtaining territorial control in Iraq and Syria and launching external operations. Their infrastructure remains intact. We handed Afghanistan back to the Taliban and uh, to a large uh, element. ISIS's largest component outside of Iraq and Syria was in Afghanistan. They still have control uh, of that terrain and resources now that we left on the battlefield in Afghanistan. It's likely that that is the global command and control element at this point. And second, Iraq and Syria still are suffering under the same consequences that we saw after the U.S. withdrawal in 2011. So I think we are seeing the conditions for resurgence, and therefore I think we are likely to see a resurgence. I don't think that this strike is an indication that that is certain, but I think it is a warning that if we are not careful and don't take action now, that is exactly what we are going to see because all the conditions are necessary. I'd add one other thing, mm. and that is as Iran continues to assert itself in the region, this is also a natural consequence. One of ISIS's biggest recruiting uh, pitches other than the United States, but after we departed, the biggest recruiting pitch was we cannot be subjugated to uh, Persian Shia Islam in natural Arab Sunni areas. And so ISIS also fed off of that discontent. And we're seeing, again, the same conditions where Iran is asserting itself in areas that are not traditionally Iranian. And there is, uh, there is going to be and is, in some senses, already a backlash against it. And ISIS, or something very much like it, could very well be that backlash. The Heritage Foundation's Robert Greenway, do you have any final thoughts before we let you go today? No, I think we covered a great deal of ground, and I'm grateful <laughs> for the opportunity. Thank you so much for being with us to cover so much ground. Really appreciate your time. For all of our listeners, if you want to stay up to date on all of the things that uh, Mr. Greenway is reporting on, specifically as it relates to Israel, you can find all of his work at the Heritage Foundation website. That's heritage.org. Thank you all so much for being with us today, for joining us here on The Daily Signal's Top News. If you haven't had the chance, make sure that you check out our evening show. It's right here in this same podcast feed, where every weekday we bring you the top news of the day. Also take a minute to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you like to listen. We are across all podcast platforms. But with that, we hope you have a great Tuesday. We will see you right back here around 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.